So we're going to carry on our series in Ecclesiastes, and we've come to chapter 4. So if you want to have that open uh, before you, and it was page 589 if you've got a church Bible. So that's Ecclesiastes chapter 4. And just while you uh, find that, I don't know whether uh, you live with other people or whether you live uh, on your own. I live on my own, and uh, some things are okay when you try and do them on your own. Some things are okay when you try and do them on your own, as long as it doesn't go wrong. And uh, one, of the, one of the things that I've been doing this weekend, actually, uh, funnily enough, my brother's, but is painting. And a painting is great on your own when everything's going well. But when it starts to go wrong and things start to drip, then you can get in a, a bit of a pickle. Because uh, when, some, when the paint is running down the brush onto your arms and onto the floor, and then you realise that you haven't got anything to mop it up with, uh, and then you can't get to the kitchen because you've got paint dripping everywhere, uh, it does get uh, quite in a pickle. And I've done it myself before. And uh, it's times like that where you just think, oh, I wish I just had somebody uh, else to help me. And uh, as we go through this um, chapter, you'll see that really that's the theme uh, of this chapter is, are you with me? Is there somebody with me? Is there somebody to help when things go bad? Is there somebody to stand with me when things go wrong or to shout up for me when I'm struggling? And who is that person? And how can we be uh, that person to other people? And you'll see, if we look at uh, the first uh, three verses of chapter four, that uh, he starts by saying, I returned and considered. And uh, I think probably there he's returning to uh, the chapter before, chapter three, verses 16 and 17, uh, where he talks about wickedness in the place of justice. It's one of those themes of Ecclesiastes, this idea that things are not the way that we would like them to be, that actually the world, as we well know, is fallen, and that actually... Uh, God is allowing things to, um, to carry on that are actually not the way that they should be, but that a day is coming of judgment where God will put all things right. But for this time being, there are things happening around us that are not what should be happening, and there is wickedness in the place of justice. And you'll see here that he talks a lot about oppression. And what he says is that actually God has placed people in authority to care for those under them, that as we were praying earlier on, and as you see throughout Scripture, that to lead is to serve, because you're put in a position of authority to care for those that you are in authority over. But actually, a lot of those in power in the world, you'll see, they don't use it for the good of others. They use it for their own good. That actually, they've got to a position of authority in order to be able to benefit themselves, that they're ruling for themselves and their friends, rather than the, the good of the people that are ruling over. And you can see that uh, this really troubles the preacher here. He's, he, he's really troubled by this idea that there are people who are being oppressed that have no one to comfort them, no one to help them, no one to stand up for them, because those in authority are misusing them and oppressing them. And you can see this abuse of power at all levels of society. You'll see it in families. you see it in nations. you see it even in spiritual leaders, that those people kind of rise to the top, as it were, who are not interested in serving others, but only interested in serving themselves. Proverbs 29.2 says, When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, the people groan. And the sad thing is, and you'll see this in verses 2 to 4, and some people will say, well, you know, this is just incredibly uh, dark and incredibly cynical, but I think it's incredibly true. It's just incredibly realistic. That actually, if this life was all there was, 
if there was no hope of something better, if there was no spiritual realm, no eternity, then actually what the preacher says here is that it would be better if you weren't even born at all, that actually death is a release, that actually it would be better to die than to live in such oppression, and actually it would be better not to be born at all. And isn't it sad that actually that could be the state for some people in this world, with all the resources and all of the things that we've got, that for some people that they might be thinking that actually it would be better not to have been born at all. That for some people, without that revelation of the bigger picture of eternity and salvation and the hope that we have for the future, that they may be sitting there thinking that it would be better not to be here at all. And actually you see that uh, in people's actions as well, because uh, Cornwall has one of the highest suicide rates in the country. And people get to that point where they say, do you know what, it would be better if I wasn't here at all. And this is nothing new. You know, Solomon identified that actually for some people, life is so hard that almost they wish they'd never been born. So what do we do with this? Well, we could say, well, this is a hopeless situation. There's nothing we can do. And in some respects, you know, that, that we are limited in, in authority and power, that we hope that, you know, there are things that we can do to, to make people's lives better, that uh, in terms of a democracy, that we can vote for people that will be in power that will make people's lives better. But sometimes it's very easy to feel helpless in these kind of circumstances and just look around you at the kind of hopelessness of the world and the injustice of the world and not really know how to respond. But I think there are a couple of things that we can do, all of us can do, and obviously some people are called to to go into politics or to go into charitable work to try and make things better. But for some of us, we're not able to do that. But we can do a couple of things. And the first thing is that we can use the power that we have to benefit others, not just ourselves. You know, all of us have an element of, uh, or a sphere of influence (coughs) that we can use for the benefit of others, even if that's just in your family or in your community or with your uh, um, neighbours or whatever it is. We all have a sphere of influence. We all have a certain power that we can use for others. Think about our families. Ephesians 5, 25 to 28 says, Husbands, Love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Isn't that an incredible responsibility on husbands, to love their wives, not for their own benefit, not from what they can just get for themselves, but actually for the benefit of the wife. Just as Christ loved the church and did all that he uh, could to um, present her blameless, to take her out of the, 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 the gutter, as it were, to, to be that wonderful bride. So husbands should love their wives and should work for the benefit of their families. What about our churches? Matthew 20, 25 to 28. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You know, even in the church, uh, the, the, the role of authority within the church is not there for the benefit of that person, 
We shouldn't be uh, those people that are trying to clamber up the ladder, as it were, in order to get status for ourselves. But those in authority in the church should be those that serve. It's not wrong to want to be great. Notice Jesus doesn't say, well, you know, you shouldn't want to be great. You shouldn't want to have influence or, uh, you know, uh, do great things. He doesn't say that. But what he says is, if that's what you want, then the way to do that is to serve. And it's those kind of men that we should be looking for in the church. But also in society as well. You know, okay, uh, for most of us, uh, um, our influence is limited in terms of society in the world. But there's always something that we can do in order to defend the poor, to defend those that cannot speak for themselves, for those that are struggling. Psalm 82, 3 says, Defend the poor and fatherless, do justice to the afflicted and needy. See, it's not good enough just to sit back and think that we can do nothing. There's always something that we can do. And the greatest thing that we can do as Christians is to actually give people hope for the future. You know, one of the reasons why the preacher looked at the world and was, uh, you know, saying that it's better off to be dead or not alive is because people had no hope. This idea that if, if this life is all there is, then if we are in a, a time of oppression or difficulty, then what hope do we have? Because we know that there is life after death. We know that however difficult things get in this life, that actually there's a, when we die, there's either things are going to get incredibly better or incredibly worse. It's not just a question of death stops everything. We know that the soul lives on and that for those of us that trust in the Lord Jesus, whatever circumstances we're going through, death uh, makes everything better. But we know that those that live, that die without Christ, death makes everything worse. That whatever it is that they were going through in this life is nothing compared to the torment and the horror that awaits for those in hell. So we know the truth of that. And that's something that we can do to help people. Whatever situation they're in, we can share the good news of the gospel with them. Not only as a hope for the future, but also a comfort for now. Because we know that God promises that all those that are chosen, all those that belong to him, everything will be working for good. Even the difficult situations that people are in, even those hopeless situations where maybe they do think it'd be better for me not to be here. They are working for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs. You know, how, how incredible is that promise that whatever it is we're going through as children of God, the benefit of that eternally will far outweigh any suffering. But that's where we need our faith in order to hold on to that promise. Because we don't see the promise yet, but one day we will. One day, no matter how difficult life has been, it will be nothing compared to the glory and the peace and the joy that is ours. Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30 says, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, whatever a Lord allows us to go through, one of the reasons that we go through it is because we will have compassion and be able to comfort others. Think about um, those that are oppressed and without a comforter. We can be that comfort. Why? Because we've gone through hardship ourselves. We know the comfort of the Lord through which we can comfort others. 2 Corinthians 1. Three to five, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulations, 
Why? That we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. You know, it's very easy for somebody who seems to have led a, a, just a happy and a joyful life and never had any adversity to start to tell people that, you know, they should just uh, trust in the Lord and everything will be okay. How much more powerful for those that have gone through it themselves and have, tr- and, and have proved the Lord's faithfulness and trusted him in difficult times to sit next to somebody going through a similar circumstance and tell them that there's hope. Go and move on to verses four to six. You know, seeing somebody in a position of power and influence or authority uh, can be an incredible inspiration, can't it? You might see somebody who's uh, in a sphere that you're interested in, whether that's kind of uh, with a a work situation or maybe a hobby that you've got or uh, maybe you're creative or a musician and you see somebody who's kind of at the the pinnacle of success and it's a real inspiration and and maybe it's a real positive motivation for us to work harder or to study harder, especially if we think that we could benefit others by whatever it is we do. And that can sometimes be a really positive uh, motivation because it really uh, spurs us on to do better. But actually, you'll see that uh, in verses four to six, uh, Solomon, again, is very realistic and he identifies that human achievement is often more driven by envy and greed than it is by altruism. You know, for maybe every one person that's thinking, oh, I'll put the time and effort into being good at this so that it will benefit others. There's lots of people saying, oh, I'll put the time and effort into this because it will benefit me. It will bring me riches or it will bring me fame. How often we're motivated by envy, wanting what someone else has or wanting to be uh, what someone else is. And Solomon, again, is very practical and identifies this in verses 4 and 6. And he uses uh, three illustrations to, to illustrate Three different types of people. And the first two are kind of opposites. You'll see in verse 5, he talks about a man with folded hands. He says, the fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. And then you'll see in verse 6, he talks about the opposite of that, a man whose both hands are full. So one of them is almost like this, kind of stubbornly refusing to do anything. And the other one is so busy, just grasping all the time with both hands, with toil and grasping for the wind. And for me, these two things are, are almost opposite, but I think they're both driven by envy. They're both driven by this idea that I want to be someone else, or I want to have what someone else has. And the first one is actually, I think, well, in my, uh, in my view, is more prevalent now than ever, is this idea that people are so uh, envious of others, but also have this kind of hopelessness and stubbornness that they can't achieve what other people of achieving. So they're just going to kind of stubbornly uh, cross their arms and do nothing. Or they're going to play the victim card to say, oh no, woe is me. You know, I, I can't get what they have. I haven't got the privilege or the character or whatever it is that these people are, uh, have got. So it's just hopeless. And it's so easy to become very bitter. And I know it myself in my own experience to see other people and think, oh, I wish I was like them or I wish I had what they had. But they're not being prepared to do the hard work to get it. And it's what happens then, as you'll see uh, Solomon describes it, that they consume their own flesh. It's almost like a self-destructiveness kicks in to say, well, if I can't work and be positive and, and, and achieve what I want to achieve or be who I want to be, if I can't be like other people, then I'm just going to self-destruct. 
It's almost like a form of suicide, but just a kind of a slow form of it, if you like, that you kind of close down. There's this stubborn refusal to live and to, 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 to try and achieve. A consuming of your own flesh, a self-destructiveness. Now, that might be in terms of mental health difficulties, maybe eating too much or eating too little. It could be in terms of laziness, just a refusal to work or do anything. There's so many different ways that we can self-destruct, that we can consume our own flesh, that we can stubbornly kind of dig our heels in and say, well, if I can't have this great thing, then I'm just not going to do anything. Proverbs 6, verse 10 to 11 says, a little sleep and a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep, so shall your poverty come on you like a prowler and your needs like an armed man. 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 to 12 says, For even when we were with you, we commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall they eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. How many people are sitting at home on the computer, on social media, busybodying, criticising everybody else, playing the victim card, just going on and on about how difficult a life they have without actually getting out and trying something now we know that i'm you know i don't want to be harsh here we know that some people do struggle that because of their character or their experiences it can be more difficult for them to do things but i think the bible is very clear that none of us can just fold our hands and say i'm not going to do anything i'm expecting everybody just to give to me the world to do it all for me the bible is very clear that we reap what we sow but the opposite of that equally is negative This idea of both hands full, toiling and grasping after things. This kind of obsession with work. It's kind of the opposite of the other one. The other one is kind of a hopeless inertia and an apathy, saying, well, there's nothing I can do. I really want to be this person. I really want to have these things, but I just can't do anything about it. This opposite extreme is just an obsession with working towards things. Just working and grasping and toiling, often at the expense of other people not thinking about the impact that they're having on on others or the good that they might do for others, but just setting their eyes upon um, self-fulfillment or self, um, uh, you know, making yourself better, self-help. You know, how many people are kind of in the gym working all day just to have that better body and better body, never satisfied, always a desire for more? Or how many people are kind of working all hours of the day to have more and more and more things? And it becomes an obsession. And it can so easily lead to this kind of idolising of wealth and power. If I have wealth, if I have power, if I have status, if I have a six-pack, then I'll be happy. Then that will give me what I need in life. But Paul warns against it. 1 Timothy 6 verse 9. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare. It's a many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. You see, for me, the people at these two extremes, although they're very, very different and their behaviour is very different and their attitude is very different, actually what they're trying to do is to benefit themselves by wishing they were someone else. And they spend all their time obsessing about what they want to be or what they want to have. And it all becomes about them. 
whether that's just kind of sitting in their room with folded, stubborn hands, refusing to do anything, expecting the world to kind of give to them and feel sorry for them, or whether it's kind of uh, uh, just working and working and working to try and get these things. It all becomes about them. But actually, what they could be doing is benefiting other people by just being themselves. You know, God has created us all unique. And actually, if we're all trying to be someone else, then who's being us? If God has fitted us with a circumstance or a character or with life experiences, even if it's negative, difficult life experiences, God has given that to us. He's given it for the benefit of others and for his glory. And if we're all the time trying to be someone else or have what someone else has had, who is being us? Who is filling that slot that God actually wants us to be? You know, these two people are very, very different in what they're doing, but it's all about them. It's all about them trying to be something else to better themselves. Not actually just saying, I'm going to be me, but I'm going to be me for the benefit of others and for the glory of God. And again, I have to put my hands up. How many wasted hours of time and energy and resources have I used up trying to be someone else or have what someone else has, rather than just being grateful for what I have and being me? How many people have lost out, maybe, from the fact that I wasn't me and was trying to be someone else? I don't know. See, Solomon encourages a third way, and you'll see this in verse 6. A handful with quietness. And you'll see that this is not somebody with folded hands. This is not somebody grasping with both hands. But this is somebody that has one handful, but is also quiet and still. And for me, this is the idea of balance, of perspective. That yes, they're working. They're not just sitting there expecting everybody to do things for them. But equally, they have a balance with the other hand. And maybe that other hand is holding on to the Lord. Maybe that other hand is realising that life is not just about having and doing. Psalm 73 verse 23 says, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. Maybe that other hand is holding on to the Lord while the other hand is working. Proverbs 38 to 9 says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Now, what a wise thing to say, just give me enough. Not so that I'll be so rich that I think I don't need you and I'm a self-made person. Not so that I'm so poor that I, uh, I have to steal and then dishonor the Lord. Just give me the food allotted to me. You see, we should work hard but we have to keep those riches in perspective with the other important things in life, our relationship with the Lord, our relationship with family and our community and how our life may benefit others and how easy it is just to get that balance wrong, especially in this life with the economic circumstances that we're in, how hard it is just to work enough to be able to provide and keep things in perspective. You see, this kind of balanced life, this hand, one hand full with quietness, will lead to a life of contentment and thankfulness with who God has made us and with the lot in life that we've been given. As we read earlier, Psalm 100, 3 to 4 says, Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us, not we ourselves. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. Do you notice there that we are sheep, but we are in the Lord's pasture? He's provided 
what we need. You know, it really struck me the other day, and I, sometimes scripture strikes you, doesn't it? You've read it a thousand times, but all of a sudden, when it says that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, that means actually that we're not going to want for anything. That whatever it is we truly need, the Lord is going to provide it for us. Maybe not in the way that we would like, maybe not in the timing that we would like, but we shall not want because we're the sheep of his pasture. You see, the grass is, no, this is not my uh, thought, this is someone else's, but the grass, often we say, isn't it, the grass is greener on the other side, and that's that idea of envy, isn't it? If only I had this, or if only I was this, then life would be better. And somebody has said that actually the grass is not greener on the other side, the grass is greener where you water it. That actually if you're thankful for what you have, if you care for it, if you nurture it, if you use it wisely, then that grass underneath your feet where you are will become greener. Better a peaceful and content life than having loads with stress and discomfort. So the preacher acknowledges that actually a lot of the motivation, a lot of the reason why people are working is because of envy. And then he identifies a man in verses 7 and 8, a very solitary man, a very lonely man. And it's a very sad picture of somebody who is obsessed with work but never satisfied always wanting more and working for more, but never having enough. And there's no one benefiting from his labour, not even himself. He never stops to think that actually, what good am I doing? Who is benefiting from this? And you'll see there, he says that, you know, that he's not even benefiting himself. He's so obsessed with working that he's not stopping to think, actually, am I enjoying this? What good is this doing me? You see, the envy that we see in verse 4 can so easily lead to people being isolated and obsessed with work. You know, maybe all of us know that person that has just kind of uh, become more and more isolated as they become more and more uh, a workaholic, if you like, more and more involved in the, the rat race where they're kind of isolating themselves from other people or from the things that they used to enjoy. There's no real balance in their life. Now, obviously, people can be isolated and on their own for, for many different reasons. Some of us are more intro- introverted in, in character and, uh, you know, not so easy at... Uh, uh, making friends or of, of being in big groups. Some people have had past experiences, which makes them uh, hard to trust other people. Some people have just got a low uh, self-esteem or confidence that means that they're not so good in groups. Some just have a lack of opportunity to really find their place. So there's lots of different reasons why somebody might be isolated. But actually, envy is, is one of the greatest. This idea that they're not really satisfied with themselves. They're not able to rest and be quiet because they're always grasping to have more or be more. And an obsession with work, I think, can, um, can happen for many different reasons. This idea of having to be busy. And again, it can be an envious thing. It can be because you're always looking for uh, the next thing or more and more and more. But I think also it can be the fact that uh, people can be insecure, that they're trying to look for meaning in work that, that actually they'll never get from work. It could be that they're trying to mask some unhappiness by just keeping busy, it could be they're trying to avoid things that are more difficult, you know, maybe difficult family or difficult circumstances. Actually, you think, well, if I just obsess with work and I'm always at work, I don't have to deal with all of that. But no matter how it starts or why it starts, being isolated, sorry, being isolated and always busy will never end in satisfaction, but only in increased isolation and discontent. You know, it's a terrible thing to be toiling with no other need than just an insatiable desire for more and no other beneficiary than yourself, and maybe not even yourself. We must guard against placing too much focus and time 
and our work to the detriment of other things in life, especially relationships. Now, as I said, work-life balance is really hard in this climate we're in, but you'll see that in verses 9 to 12, Solomon really identifies the benefits of camaraderie, of relationship. He highlights a better way than being isolated and alone. Because labour, our work, is not just about status or wealth, but it's about relationships. You know, when I look back at some of the jobs I've had, the greatest thing about those jobs were the relationships that I've developed with the people that I've working with. Some of them have remained friends for years. You see, relationships provide us with help. You'll see that in verse 10. With comfort in verse 11. And with protection in all areas of life. They're not just about work or home or whatever. Relationships are so important in so many areas, and especially in our church community. Psalm 68, verse 6 says, God sets the solitary in families. However, it's so easy to neglect building relationships. Even in church, it's so easy just to attend meetings or busy ourselves doing stuff and not actually have time to get to know people. But fellowship is so important. You know, if we're truly going to love each other, we have to get to know one another to understand why we're struggling and to be able to get alongside. How can you comfort somebody with the comfort that God has given you if you don't even know what they're struggling with? And the early church gave themselves to fellowship. You know, sometimes when we read this next verse, we miss out the fellowship bit. Acts 2.42 says, They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayer. How often we focus on the apostles' doctrine, on breaking bread, on prayers, but we miss out the importance of fellowship. And you can't just do it on a Sunday or a midweek meeting. It's about actually living life together. See, not all of us find relationships easy to build or maintain, so it's important that we support and encourage each other to do that because it's so easy just to keep being busy. And as a single person, I know how important it is not to isolate myself. You know, being single or on your own can lead to all sorts of mental health issues or hidden sins, faith struggles that nobody need know about. It could also lead to a lot of pride and self-centeredness because you haven't got to think about anybody else. In Genesis 2.18, the Lord God says, it's not good that man should be alone. So it's important that we create a loving community where everyone has the support that they need and where no one feels isolated or that they're facing life alone. Surely that's one of the things that we do as the family of God. And the benefits of relationship are illustrated again in verse 12, this idea of a threefold cord not quickly broken, this idea that three strands twisted tightly together are so strong. You know, often this is quoted in marriage ceremonies where it's, you know, the the, the couple and, and God is the third strand. But I think it's in every area of life, this idea of relationships, one with another and with God himself. And the cords represent those relationships with ourselves and with God. And it's not just the amount of strands that's important, but how tightly they're twined together. See, this threefold, threefold cord will withstand the stresses of life. It'll help prevent self-centeredness. It'll help present, prevent oppression, envy and loneliness. And finally, you'll see in verses 13 to 16, the preacher talks about successes. So not only is it important that we develop relationships with our peers, with those around us at this present time, but also it's important that we develop relationships with those that will succeed us. Because as we've seen before in the earlier chapters, there's always somebody that will take our place. You know, although we might want to think that you know, we're the most important thing and we always will be and everybody will always remember us, most people will fade into history. And you'll see here in verses 13 to 16 that Solomon identifies the importance of building relationships 
so that, that uh, the skill and the, the things that we've learned can be passed on through those generations. He talks about a, a youth born in difficult circumstances, that actually if they're prepared to learn from discipline, failure and correction, anybody can make it into those positions of authority that we've been talking about, even people that come from very difficult circumstances, but only if they have the nurture and the help from those around them. You see, old age and status and experience can make us very unteachable if we're not careful. You know, I'm finding this as I'm getting older. It's very easy just to get stuck in your ways, to think that you know best, to, to uh, sort of be defensive against any new ideas, to become arrogant and proud. But it's foolish to think that we're indispensable because of our knowledge or our experience. There's always somebody at our heels. There's always somebody who can take our place. No matter what influence we have, it can so easily be lost to someone else. And it's so easy as we get older to fall into the trap of looking down on those who are younger and trying to hold on to power for too long. So it's important that all of us train up somebody to take our position. You know, Solomon says in verse 15 that there is a second youth. There's somebody who will come along after you. So who is it? Who is it in, in, in our church life, in our work life, in our family? Who is that youth that will stand in our place? We should all be looking for that somebody that we can nurture to take the role that we, that we have, somebody that we can share our skills with, share our experiences, not trying to hold on to it all, but actually to share it. And I would encourage you all to think, who is that person that will come after me? Who is that person that I can um, nurture and help to fulfil that role that I now have? 2 Timothy 2, 2 says, And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses... Commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul was very keen that whatever he um, had experienced, the knowledge that he had, that he passed on to Timothy, that Timothy too passed that on. So just in conclusion, let's ask ourselves some questions and you know, maybe it's, uh, it's something that we can think about this week. Are we rising above others by walking all over them? Or are we using our power and ability for the benefit of others? in our family, our work, and our community? Are we turning a blind eye to injustice? Or are we comforting those who need our help? Are we thankful and making the most of who God has made us and what he's given us? Or are we envious of others or playing the victim? Are we lost in the rat race of keeping busy? Or are we investing in relationships with our family, our friends, our neighbours, and our church family? Are we working together with others? Or are we competing against them? And as we get older, are we getting unteachable and overly critical? Or are we encouraging and training those who will take our place? Amen.